But you know, often people come up to me and say, I want to adopt a child, how can I? I'm like, well, go to your ward office. Yeah, I, I think the first time we met was probably close to 2014. Okay. And and I think uh, maybe at the time that you you were the president of, of actually I was president from 2008 to 2012, but I still okay. felt like I was president in 2014. Okay. So I mean, <laughs> well, it definitely was here, and, and and you acted like president. <laughs> okay, there you go, there you go. And and it was talking about uh, kids who live in in essentially orphanages, and I and I think at the time. We were talking about ways, uh, you know, to reach out to the community more, etc. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I've always followed you, you know, on LinkedIn and run into you, etc. But yeah, we met here quite, quite well, almost going on ten years ago. Wow. Yeah. So, Michael, tell me this: what what is the podcast that you have? Because um, before I get into where you were born and everything. Yeah. Um, the podcast we have is uh, You Me We, so it's for the MPO. Let's say it again. It's you, me, we. You, me, we. Yeah. So we, we feel the three most important words in any language is you, me, we, because that's where everything starts with. Mm -hmm. And uh, initially it was interviewing donors or people you know that support us, but then we expanded to interview other people at MPOs that we met along the way, uh, simply to talk about different views of helping people. Because I think you know it's very easy for anybody to walk into a refugee camp or walk into someone's house or walk into someone's life and, and think you know what they need to do. But uh, our approach both at Yumi We and also from, from doing the podcast and talking to other people is teaching people about their toolkit and, and what they have in their toolkit. So when they're approached uh, a problem in their life or a challenge not to run away, not to feel despair, not to feel alone, but to reach into that toolkit that they've accumulated and then see what they have available to them to solve the problem. And if they don't have all the tools they need, then they should reach out to the other people you know, that, that know them through the network that we've created for them. Now what is it? Do you have a group of people that have been trained in doing this? Or is it just something... In our NPO? In your NPO, yes. Well, I mean, we're not professionals at it. Okay. Uh, I think we do the best we can. Uh, recently, um, we noticed that there was other groups that were probably articulating it better than we were, even though in practice we were doing the same thing. So, for example, um, when the so, so if you don't know, there's 33,000 orphans in Japan mm -hmm. and 600 homes, and then there's 14,000 children that live in foster care. Okay. Now, the Human Rights Watch wishes of the UN wishes it was the other way around that there was more kids in foster care than uh, institutional care. Culturally, that just isn't the case. And you know, adoption of, of kids that are in orphanages is not necessarily popular. Uh, in Japan, there seems to be almost this kind of divine right to keep your children in your family tree. So even though children have been taken away from their parents, you can't force them to remove them from their family tree and, and, and make them available to be adopted. But isn't it very also very difficult for foreigners <coughs> to adopt Japanese children? It's, I would say it's, it's difficult, but it's also not impossible. It's not impossible? No. But it's not one of the easiest things to do? No, but I mean, what is? I mean, okay. even if, you know, back in America, if we want to adopt kids, there's a process and there's, there's steps you have to go through. What's the term out age for Japanese? Uh, as far as the number being adopted? Yes. When they, like, is it when they turn 18 or is it 20? Uh, well, interestingly, in Japan, <clears throat> most adoptions are in adulthood. And, and that's simply because of inheritance reasons or, you know, same-sex marriage can't get married so they adopt their partner so they can leave them their estates, etc. But the sad part is if there ever is same-sex marriage in Japan, they can't marry their child because it's already too late. They've already adopted them. So, but yeah, most adoptions in Japan take place in adulthood. Now you just lost me for a second. Same-sex marriage, for example, a guy and a woman, I mean a guy and a man, a man and a man, a woman and a woman, and they want to adopt a child that's an adult. And you said they want to marry this child? No, 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 I'm sorry. Most adoption in Japan okay. is actually between adults, so an adult adopting an adult. But they actually want to marry this person. They, they, they would like to marry them, but they can't. So they adopt them so that they can pass on their, oh, their estate. But why can't they marry them? 
Uh, because same-sex marriage is not allowed in Japan. Oh, right? I see. Yeah. I see. I understand. Yeah. But they've changed the rules in Shibuya. Well... It's, I know they're not married, but they can still claim some of the same rights married people can. It's, it's a bit, in my opinion, the tail wagging the dog. Because okay. essentially, the only thing allowed in Shibuya is if uh, a, a partner of someone, same-sex partner of someone, goes into hospital, uh, that partner's family can't keep you from visiting them in the hospital. Okay. Whereas before, that family oh. could say, you can't come in you're because not, you're not you're family not and you're, you're not, not married, married. etc. The second thing, as far as I understand, is landlords cannot discriminate against two men or two women you know, applying for an, uh, an apartment to rent together. You can't okay. discriminate. That's really it. There's no recognition of, of same-sex marriage and any of the wards. What about tax-wise? Well, that's a much bigger conversation. The, the reality is, in Japan, as far as I know, and, and I've looked into this, there is a legal document in Japanese that you can have created to essentially make you married to your partner, but it's not marriage. But is that the same document that you use if you've lived together for five years, but don't go through the formal part, and you can prove that you've been together for five years, and then that's considered the same as marriage? I don't know. Okay. I don't know if that's exactly the same one. They, have that, they yeah. have that law as well. Right. And I think several countries like do. common law marriage. Right, common right. law marriage. You've been together long enough. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I think in Japan, uh, you know, for example, in Mizuho, they offer mortgages for same-sex couples. There's Dow insurance companies that offer policies for same-sex couples. Tokyo Star Bank offers a uh, retirement takey, like a takey account for same-sex couples. So Rakuten, it doesn't have an issue uh, issuing a family card to your same-sex partner, whereas other banks won't. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, from the LGBT community perspective, I think that those are really big um, uh, movements or, or reaching out to the community that corporates have done. Mm -hmm. and, and my opinion to everyone is you should be reaching back. Even if you put one yen into Tokyo Star Bank, or even if you, you know, switch your bank As, to right. the banks don't that are reaching out to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, right. don't ignore it. Don't be apathetic about the fact that these corporations, which are very traditional and very, you know, set in their ways, have made an effort to reach out to the community, and the community should reach back. They shouldn't ignore That's it. Be apathetic about That's it. Yeah, point. for sure. There's something, Michael. We're going to get into. I want to get into a bit. Where were you born? Just go through that real briefly. Napa, Napa Valley. Napa Valley. In California. So you're a wino. No. <laughs> <laughs> and we never drank wine. <laughs> if, if I was born in L.A., I'd never been to Disneyland. you never been to Disneyland? No, no. Really? So you were born in Napa Valley? Yeah. And did you, were you raised there as well? Yeah, born and raised. So and my... Did, how old were you when you left? I was 18. I went to university right, right, right from Napa, and I just wanted to get out of the valley. <laughs> and where did you go? Uh, first, I went to University of Pacific in Stockton. Okay. Okay. which was hot right. and uh, not much prettier. <laughs> right. I mean, you, you don't appreciate Napa until you leave, <laughs> right? And now I go back and I'm like, why did I ever leave here? I mean, I look up and there's no cables in the sky. There's no skyscrapers. It's just, you know, it's beyond beautiful. Right. Right. And my uncle said, I'm never leaving here because there ain't no good place to eat. <laughs> <laughs> so it's filled with some of the best restaurants, I think, in the world. So we're really fortunate to be from there. What brought you to Japan? Well, um, when I was six years old... Um, no, I'll tell you what happened at six years old. Okay. Okay, Grandpa Perry yep. used to give you coins yep. at six years old. Right. And that was so fascinating to you, and he'd tell you stories about his time while he was here in Japan. Yeah. And he's the kind of guy that everyone should have in the family because you should always have someone that you want to be your best around and do your best for. Yeah. And that's what he was for you. Yeah. Even though he died very young, but at the time it seemed old. He was 56. Yeah, I was nine. Yeah. Did you get that pretty good? Yeah, exactly. Right on target. The, there's a little bit more before well, was that. Was he a grandpa on your mother's My side? mother's father. Your yeah. mother's father, okay. Yeah. And so uh, we were actually in a car accident. And in the 70s, we didn't wear seatbelts. I was in the back in Sacramento with no shirt on. I was six. And I remember, and, and my stepfather was a Vietnam vet, so he was deaf and blind on the left. And my sister and he were in the front seat. Uh, we were in a Pinto, which, you know, blow up. 
Tell me about it. If you hit it in the back. Yeah. So we were going into the intersection. He saw that he had a green light. The air conditioned on. You know, the radio's on, so he doesn't hear the siren. And I look up and I see. And I remember saying, wow, a fire engine. And that's the last thing I remember. And so the fire engine hit the car and it spun and spun and spun and spun. And when it stopped, I was hanging out the back of the car um, and they thought I was dead. You were six? Six years old. Okay. So the next thing I remember after saying fire engine is my mother being over me at the, at the accident scene, but she wasn't in the car. So she would have had to flown literally from the house to me. And she's a nurse. And then my next memory is waking up in the emergency room and my next memory is being in the hospital bed next to a kid uh, who was famous in Sacramento because he and his brother had been beat up with baseball bats. And as soon as they healed, he went home and accidentally put Ajax in his eyes. So he was now blind. So he was next to me. And my grandmother came to visit wearing a Japanese medallion as a necklace. And you remember that? <clears throat> I said, where did you get that? Because I love to collect keys and coins and things like that. She said, oh, this is from Japan. Your grandfather, Perry, used to live in Japan. And so maybe if you're nice, he'll give you something next time you see him. So you, you couldn't wait to see him? Yeah. So, I mean, that, Perry, mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, that car, I mean, of course, I knew him and I loved him. Right. But that car accident changed the course of my life. Because every time I would see him, he'd give me a coin or he'd give me a medal or he would give me one yen notes printed out. That's you know? right, because they had one yen notes, yeah, they sure did. Yeah. So I had a little box of my Japanese collection that I kept my whole life. Was he in the service? He was army. Army, so he was over here during the occupation. World War II, he, he first II, yeah. went to the Philippines, mm -hmm. and then after that he was in Japan in the during aftermath the as a yes. telephone engineer. So he mm. was putting up cables uh, in Yamanashi. Did he, did he finish his career in, this, in the military? Did no. He, um, when he was, when, I guess when he was able to, he went back home. Mm -hmm. By then, uh, I had, my two aunts had been born, um, and then along came my mom. Okay. So in your family, you have siblings? Are you the only child? You told me that story. <laughs> that is interesting. Yeah, let's go through that. Yeah. Not, not the two-hour version. No, okay. <laughs> I think in total, there's 13 siblings between my mother's marriages and my father's marriages and half-sisters and, okay. and step-brothers and sisters. But let's talk about how that happened, how long it was before you realized you weren't, your father wasn't dead, you thought he had died. Right, right. So uh, my mom interestingly never talked about my biological father. And uh, the reason I found out about it is because my stepfather was you know, bathing me, as you do young kids, and he was holding me under the water and, and I felt was drowning me. And, and I kept saying, you know, daddy, daddy, stop, stop. And he said, I'm not your daddy. And that's the first time I realized that he wasn't my dad. So he was the one that was driving the car and he was kind of the, I mean, from two, my parent, my mother and he married. So he's the only kind of male adult that I knew besides my grandfather and maybe my uncle. I was left alone with him. And, and he was scarred from the Vietnam War. So a bomb had blown up in his face and that's why he couldn't hear or see. Half of his face was, was damaged from the bomb. So it was a bit scary, you know, for a two-year-old to be around a strange male. And uh, he had hit my mom. So that's my earliest memory, is that he hit my mother. And so at, at youngest two, I remember her picking me up and I had a badminton ra racket and I was swinging at him saying no. No, as she was carrying me out of the apartment to get me out of there. But rewind, you know, fast forward the tape. She was pregnant with my sister at the time, so she didn't want to leave him. And then so we stayed together, moved to Sacramento. And when I felt he was drowning me and he said, I'm not your daddy, I asked my mom later. I said, what did he mean by that? And she said, oh, well, you actually have a different father. And I had no idea. And she told you that he was dead, though. No, she didn't know. She didn't know where he was. Okay. Uh, a psychic told me he was dead. Okay. Because <laughs> I had asked, because, you know, before... But how old was this when you asked? I was, like, you know, five or six. No, no, the psychic at five... Oh, was, I'm sorry. Wait, 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 just a minute. No, 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 that was in adulthood. That was okay, in adulthood. Because okay. I, you know, even with the internet, I couldn't find him. Okay. And, and the psychic so said, you So you were in your 20s stop. or something? And I was probably closer to my 40s. Oh, really? When and you went to Psychic, were you said, in Japan already? 
I think um, it was it was a psychic I used to speak to on the phone, so I don't remember where I was. So you're giving her monthly payments. Wait, no, what's, up, no. what's up with this? Wait, <laughs> you're really getting interesting. On occasion, I would. I, I don't believe in in this per se, but I always loved like the perspective that I would get by speaking to to him. And, okay. And so he, I said, you know, I'm cur- I'm always curious if my biological father still alive and he and he kind of went to wherever he goes right. and came back and said no he's no longer alive so I gave up I stopped looking for him okay and you were close to your 40s at the time you were in yeah. your 30s okay yeah yeah yeah. and I kind of just thought well you know you know I'm in my 40s if, if he wanted to find me he could have because my aunt and uncle have lived in the same house you know since like 1970 71 they're in the book you know they're in the phone book so I felt if he wanted to find me, or if anybody wanted to find me, they could. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of just gave up at right, that time. Right. So when did you rekindle this desire to find out if he exists, if he was still alive? Or how did that happen? Uh, it was also here at this club, because I was downstairs at a at member's At the new party. club? At the new club. At this new building? Yeah, I was 48. I'm 54 now, so right. I was 48 at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the donors, um, came up to me and said, you know, for, for you and me, we, you should speak to the Masons um, because they give a lot of money away every year. And I said, oh, well, my great-grandfather was a Mason. My mother's mother's father was a Mason. And now, now he lived in China in the 1900s, and he was kidnapped. <laughs> By whom? By people who just wanted this blonde-haired white... Oh, so they weren't blonde-haired. They were, yeah, they were yeah, Chinese. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so they, the family, I think, were spies. I mean, they were reporting about prison systems in China in 1900. They must have been spies. But anyhow, the chef chased after him and got him back. Otherwise, I might be part Chinese today. <laughs> so as the story goes, they moved back to San Francisco, and they were there for the 1906 earthquake. And, and so he remembered, you know, the chandelier in his room swinging back and forth as he hid under the bed. But he, he also died at 56, my great-grandfather, but he was an engineer and he was a Mason. So when I heard about the Masons, I thought, well, I should go home and, and prove this link back to my great-grandfather. So I went home after the members party here, and I went on to Ancestry.com. And uh, I hadn't been on there for years because that was also my mother's kind of legacy. She kept all that stuff, analog version. So I took all the analog stuff about our family and put it on Ancestry.com, digital. And uh, I added my daughters because they'd been born since I'd been on uh, Ancestry.com. Found the link to my great-grandfather that I wanted to share with the Masons. But then I clicked on my mom who passed away at 49 uh, in 98. it was maybe 99, actually How, how old was she when she had you? you she know? was about 18. 18, okay. Young. So your mother and father didn't marry? Well, uh, again, she never talked about it. And okay, then, you know, she would be sitting in front of the TV drinking a tab. <laughs> and yeah. something on TV would say, do you children know where you come from? And she'd say, don't believe you can't get pregnant when you have sex the first time because you can't. And then that's all she would say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so presumably, well, actually what happened is my mom had a car accident okay. when she was about 17. So she had red hair. So, you know, the story always goes that redheads have a temper and she was dating a redhead. <laughs> so they got in a fight. She drove off in a Neapolitan Nash and then slid off the road. And when the car stopped, she broke her back. And so at 17, she crawled up in the rain at night and nobody would help her because they thought she was drunk and she walked a mile with Mm -hmm. a broken back. So then after that, in her recuperation, unfortunately she started gaining weight and she started not feeling great about herself. So it was really like the first time she'd gone on a date with her best friend that she was introduced to my biological father who was maybe 19 to her 18 or 17. And yeah, first time for everything and next thing you know she couldn't lose weight at all. Right. Because she found out she was pregnant with me. Your mother, I, I just from looking at your Facebook page and going through the pictures and clicking to see the comments you put in there, she said something very interesting too when you told her you were about to skydive. Yes. She yeah. seemed to be very insightful. She paused. Tell it. Yeah, I mean, my mom had a high school education, but I think she was the most educated person. Her EQ was just phenomenal, wasn't it? Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? She took care of you all the way through. Yeah. yeah. 
But what did she say? Well, I mean, she said, you know, people in the rest home don't think about, I should have never gone skydiving. They think I should have gone skydiving. So she said, anything you do and you want to do, do it. Because you don't want to end up at the end of your life with regrets, essentially. Would you, did you ever, did you, when did you come out to your mother? Did you? I personally didn't. Um, my sister was visiting and actually. How old were you when you personally didn't? Uh, <laughs> and she found out. 25. I was around 25. So your mother never assumed or thought. I mean, I don't know how she could not have known that. In fact, Why? the reason... What you were doing that you think she would know? <laughs> well, I think, you know, in that generation, if you will, she wanted to keep a male influence on in my life. So okay. after the first marriage didn't work out, she married again, hoping I would have, you know, a male figure. And then when the second marriage didn't turn out, she married again. And I would say, you know, my third father, if you will, had the most influence on my, you know, upbringing and adopted me. And so Clemens is his name, but Perry was my grandmother's, or grandfather's name, who didn't have sons. So that way that name perpetuates. So what happened is my, my, one of my stepsisters was visiting my mother, and my mother said, yeah, I never think I'm going to be a grandmother by Michael because of his lifestyle, because I was living in Japan at the time. And my sister misinterpreted that. My mother meant being an expat. Right. And my sister interpreted that as, oh, so you know about him and Joe. Who was Joe? Uh, that was my first partner. Your first partner, okay. And my mom said, excuse me? <laughs> she really did not know? Uh, okay, but if she's in, she So she says. Okay. All I remember in those days, internet was AOL, and it <laughs> was right. like... <laughs> and I remember the message from my mother came through like... Lifestyle subject. And then... Dear Michael, I thought, I hope this is not what I think it is. And I had to sit there and wait for the message to download on AOL to find out that she'd found out from someone else. Was she upset? Very. So would she have to, she didn't try to disown you or anything like no, that? No, not at she? all. I mean, she, you know, she grew up in Napa, which, you know, what people don't realize is a very small town. I mean, there's 50,000 people in Napa when I left. She just said, look, I don't know if you think you're a woman trapped in a man's body. I don't know she what you're there? thinking. She went there? She said that? Yeah. What year are we talking now? But well, I mean, this is ninety four, ninety five. Okay. So. But you know, prior to that, she used to say if she ever found out that that I was gay, she would chop my mum off. So she so was she very, was trying to, very crudely would say these things, right? And I, you know, now now that we're on the subject, I didn't really talk to anybody about it until university when I realized I need to talk to somebody. And they said, who do you want to talk to? And I saw this lady walk by and I said, her. And so she became my first kind of therapist to talk about things. Ooh, who do you, ooh. This lady walked by in your university? Yeah, yeah, because you're entitled. At, at that point, I, okay, so at that point, I transferred from UOP to USF in San Francisco. Okay. And in between there, I'd come to Japan. So I'd already had my Japan experience in between that. But once I'd landed back in San Francisco and started my kind of career at USF, if you will, I realized that, you know, I need to talk to somebody because I need to sort some things out. Mm -hmm. and, and it wasn't, and, and to be frank, I mean, it wasn't because of any kind of hang-ups that my mom hung on me because that first email, I think she was definitely hurt because she'd heard from someone else besides me. But I think ultimately when I flew home, because, you know, Joe convinced me to fly home and I gave up my so job year, and my apartment. Yeah, well, I came here to get away from Joe. I moved here in 93 because I thought while I'm sleeping, he's awake, and while I'm awake, he's sleeping, so I don't have to think about it. <laughs> Plus, I had a job here, and so there was many reasons for me to come to Japan in 93. And so he, interestingly, I never expected to come visit me and did, and then convinced me to go back home. And then I went back home, but right before I got on the plane, I got a phone call that he changed his mind. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I quit my job in this apartment and I have a one-way ticket to nowhere and all these boxes are addressed to you, so I have no idea what I'm gonna do. And you get to hang up at the phone and go walk the dog. So I flew home one way and my mom, uh, after a few days, she said, so what's going on with Joe? And I said, well, changed his mind. 
And she said, well, she said, the more I think about it, she said, the more I realize that, you know, you really have to be with your best friend. How did she meet Joe? She never did. Oh, she just knew, she you, knew you talked of him. about him? Yeah. Because of your sister? My sister told her okay. about him. I see. She said, I think ultimately you need to be married to your best friend, no matter whether it's a male or female, because most people get together for sex and money. <laughs> and when the sex is not interesting and money doesn't matter, what really matters is that you have a lot in common you know, with your partner. And she said, I can see how men, for example, could have a lot in common with each other in that respect. And so I felt that was her kind of coming to terms with it, and it was nice of her to say that. Now my father, who I call my father, my stepfather who adopted me, was from Oklahoma, and he is a country singer, and uh, you know, not really a cowboy, but a redneck for sure. But I never thought I'd have an issue with him, and I didn't. You never did. I, I knew he would not be a problem. How did he I, handle it? How did I he wrote him a letter and he wrote back and said, you never get over your first love. It doesn't matter if it's a male or a female. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Wow. Is he still alive? Yeah, yeah. He's the only one alive. And you still keep in contact with him? Okay. I do. Okay. I do. That's nice. That is so, so nice. So, what, so when you came to Japan, after that you go back to the States, one-way ticket. Yeah. Joe's no longer around, mm. I'm assuming. Well, okay, it no. got a little complicated. Yeah, yeah. But he didn't come back with you, did he? Mm -mm. How long did you stay there before you came back? Well, I then got a one-way ticket to New York because I decided I wanted to hang out here and, and drag my feet on something that didn't work out. And I figured if, in, if I'm in America, I should uh, you know, make the most of it. So I, I, I got a one-way ticket to New York. Uh, I stayed at a friend's apartment who was uh, back in Texas because uh, her father was unwell. And then uh, I got a job at Goldman Sachs, believe it or not, um, through a temp agency to work in the mailroom. <laughs> and what age now? So I'm 25, 26 okay. now. So, I mean, first of all, when I came to Japan in the first place in 89, my roommate in college was half Japanese. And so he convinced me to come here during the bubble. And so it was very euphoric. It was the old club, first of all. <laughs> but it was just euphoric, and I don't use that word that often. And, and I said to people who don't know it, I said it was like everyone won the lottery and got a bonus that day. <laughs> Every day. You got, that's a good way to put it. Every that's day. So true. And so uh, I loved it. Who wouldn't? And so I got back to USF, and all I kept thinking is, how can I get back to Japan? How can I get back to Japan? And um, you know, I had to work through school. My family couldn't couldn't help, so I, I worked all through school. And uh, I remember one morning in San Francisco, I was reading the newspaper in the morning, and it said there wasn't a job for an accountant at Yokota Air Base with University of Maryland. And I thought that's a very peculiar job, but I studied accounting, and maybe that'll get me back to Japan. And I got the job. How long were you in Yokota? So I flew January fifteenth, nineteen ninety three as a civilian, and uh, Fusa is not in Tokyo. <laughs> they said it was in Tokyo, but you know. But it is Tokyo, it's, 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 it's on the very edge yes. of it. It's, 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 <laughs> so I did the limousine bus and I just kept going. And uh, it was snowing, I remember, it was snowing. And uh, my salary was dollars, and I was making like $20,000, and the yen was at 133. Okay. And then the yen went to 70. So I wasn't enjoying Japan very much. You couldn't, no. Yeah. So uh, I then switched to teaching English so that I could at least get a consistent yen pay packet every Were month. Were you living off base or on base? I had to live off base because, you know, all the, the single military people got preference That's in true. housing. And yeah. even off base, they got preference in help for housing. So, and, and the other thing is I didn't want to live in Fusa. I wanted to live in Tokyo. So I was commuting two hours each way every day. Oh, you mean you lived in Tokyo? I lived in Tokyo. I lived in Itabashi. Itabashi. And I, I've commuted four hours a day. Wow. And I had to pay for that because they were like, well, we're not going to yeah. cover your take That's right. That's right. And uh, Itabashi uh, I wrote a book about my first years in Japan, and it's called Raw Meals and Deals Behind the Omote. And it has a picture of a lady in a kimono with a dragon tail coming out the bottom. And, and I said, you know, Japanese society is like a kimono. There's many beautiful layers, but there's many layers underneath that we don't know about. 
and I felt I learned a lot of them in my first few years in Japan. So in Itabashi, in Takinogawa, you know, we found a dead guy in our river, and we had to call the police, and he got, you know, somebody just offed him and threw him in the river and pulled him out. Uh, we had a duck that had a had a uh, an arrow in its side. Uh, another uh, morning, I was opened up the shutters, and the police are out there with this guy who'd killed a cat and thrown it in the river. And the guy upstairs was, was uh, I guess, New Zealand. And he said, did you hear what happened to the guy upstairs? He's the one that hit and ran somebody the other day and the helicopters were looking for him. So, well, Michael, when you're uh, saying all that, and I'm thinking about my time here in Japan, that seems so mild compared to the other places in the world. Yeah. Of course, it seems so yeah. mild. Yeah, yeah. And that wouldn't even make the newspapers. No, and I don't think it did. Itabashi, you should explain what Itabashi is compared to the rest of Japan and Tokyo. That's like low rent area. Yeah, it is. Real it low. Is. It Real is. I mean, I had, yeah. I, I'd come home, you know, drinking with my friends at two in the morning, lock the door, and somebody would knock, and I'd say yes. And they didn't know and the wrong like, place. And they're like, they wanted to come in. They reeked a paint thinner and want to come in and party. I'm like, there ain't no party here. <laughs> so I never knew what was going to happen. Right. Yeah, but that, so, okay, so that was my first uh, dip in Japan. And then uh, I was at Goldman Sachs uh, back in New York uh, in the mailroom. And then I realized I don't have a guarantor in New York and all these jobs I'm applying for at Japanese companies, my Japanese isn't good enough. So here I am in America, I don't have a guarantor, my Japanese you mean isn't you good in enough. Japan, you mean? Now this is when I was in New York at Goldman Sachs. Okay. In New, New York America. City, you pretty much need a guarantor or a co-signer for your apartment. Okay. At least in those days or my age or, okay. or whatever the case mm -hmm. may be. Yeah. So even though, you know, I was basically receptionist to John Corzine and Hank Paulson. So, I mean, I was on that floor to keep people from going into their office. But then uh, I needed to make money because half of my salary went to the temp agency. So I was only making $9 an hour at Goldman Sachs. And so I w and, and that winter was horrible. It was a horrible blizzard in 95. So all of the janitors went on strike in New York City because 18-year-olds were supposed to get... 50,000 starting and the owners were like forget it. So the whole city all the janitors were on strike So at night in my suit and on the weekends, I would vacuum the floors For extra money. So I got to go into the retired partners floors I got to vacuum John Corzine's office and Hank Paulson. Of course, I didn't touch anything about you know Just vacuum and everything. So I saw all sorts of nooks and crannies of, of the headquarters but what what really struck me is you know when you're in the in those days it was not a listed firm right it was a private firm, so the partners still had their money in the firm even though they were retired, and what struck me when I was vacuuming is you could tell this guy or yeah it was all men you, this guy was successful in the fifties because he had a picture with Eisenhower, and the the decor was very nineteen fifties this guy was you know in the seventies he had a picture with with Carter. And there was one uh, guy who had like seven folders on his desk and it said like money, legal, communications, you know, house one, house two, house three. And the secretaries all still worked for them. So this guy would come in once a week and then open these folders, sign things, look at things and file things and then leave. So that became kind of the basis of my organization skills. And when I came back to Japan, I, I did teach English for a little while, but I got into operations at Smith Barney and became you know, CEO of, of, of many investment banks and, and basically used that philosophy of, of organization uh, to help. And you know, I had a hedge fund at one point. Uh, I came back uh, to Japan uh, and was with Barclays uh, in uh, 2007. And that's when someone asked me to play Santa Claus at an orphanage in Hiro. Uh, and apparently that land was gifted to them by the great-grandfather of the current emperor, like maybe even the great-great-grandfather. So you don't think Hiro should be a place that has an orphanage. And it's right between, I think, the Qatar embassy and another embassy. But there's, there's an orphanage right in the middle of Hiro. It's called mm -hmm. Fukudenkai. But then generally, you know, if they've been taken away from their families, they're there from 2 to 18 in the same home. But when you go into the homes, you hear all sorts of dialects. So they've been taken away from kid people in Kansai. They've been taken away from people in Tohoku. So the parents don't know where they are. 
They don't only have orphanages here in Tokyo, do they? They're all, all, over, the all over the country. There's 600 right? in the country. 600. Yeah. But there's 3 million kids living under the poverty line in Japan. So the way I Along describe with their it. Parents? Yeah. Okay, of course. So I describe it as 3 million kids coming down the river, and we've saved 33,000 in institutional care, so they get three meals a day and 14,000 into foster care, we're still 2.9 million kids going through life in poverty. What got you involved in doing this, Michael? What made you decide to care so much? Well, I mean, someone did ask me to play Santa Claus. And when I walked into, in 2007, in Fukudenkai, my friend Richard, and when I walked in, I noticed the kids were half, a lot of them. And I was not happy, because I thought, I hope that's not the reason that they're in this orphanage, because they're not pure. That's generalizing a lot. But what I noticed is, for example, the following summer, because we continued to volunteer there, at the Matsuri, a lot of the moms would show up. And like, okay, mommy's leaving now. And they're like, okay, see you later. So they couldn't keep them at home. So then you realize maybe it's an economic reason, maybe because of you know the job that she has, she can't keep them at home, etc. So in that case, they still belong to her and she still sees them. But in other cases, the parents have no idea where they are. And, and so then it becomes, uh, political is not the word, but I mean it becomes touchy because you don't even want kids inside the home to know other kids' stories. And they're told not to tell each other about their stories. And so, you know, we, we have um, one of the two children that went into the, foster, the orphanage system after 311. There was only two kids that went in. Now, there were many orphans because of the disaster, but Japan opened up the law temporarily to let extended family members adopt those kids, and then they were then now part of those families legally. But it did two things. Uh, now they don't get any Tohoku benefits, and now those families have the burden of having extra mouths to feed. And there was only two children out of all the kids from 311 that went into the system, and, and we have one of them. He's now 23. Well, I mean, we have, as far as Yumi, we, um, he works for us. Oh, he's an adult. He's an adult now. <laughs> but, but the reason I bring him up is no one knew he was from Fukushima. So I went to the home he grew up in. So, so his story is he was raised by his grandparents, and he's still processing stuff. Because we just found out his great-grandmother was also in the house during the tsunami, and he didn't say that until, like, last year. So he's still processing stuff. He was elementary school, uh, was heading home after school. The alarm went off that tells him to go back to school, but he knew his grandmother was in the house on the cliff, and he didn't know what to do, so he went back to the school. The tsunami came, took the grandmother, and I guess the great-grandmother in the house. They've never found them. The grandfather was a fisherman who got knocked off the boat, presumed dead, but they found him a year later in Kesanuma. So here's this elementary school kid. Just one thing totally changed his life. He was raised by his grandparents. His biological mom, no, his sister came to get him from Sendai and brought him to Sendai. His biological mom found out he was alive and came and got him, but she was also quite cognizant of the fact that he was going to get Tohoku benefits. So she spent them, and he would go to school, and the teacher said, you, you don't seem so genki, what's going on? He said, well, I'm, I'm hungry, and I don't have any money. He said, well, where are your parents? He said, well, they, they left me a thousand yen and they went on holiday and I don't know when they're coming back. Was he half? No, he's Japanese. And so we, they called the authorities and they, they brought him in and, and you know fed him and kept him until his mom came back from holiday. And then she was furious that, that he had said anything. And so she took him back and then she was abusing him. Her and her husband were abusing him physically. And he kept falling down the stairs at school to make excuses for all his bruises. And finally, a nurse said, these are not bruises from falling down the stairs. So she called the authorities again, and he was finally brought into the system. And so we met him when he was maybe 13, 14 in, in Itabashi mm -hmm. and started working with him then. And uh, he, he now works with us at Yumiwi. But he's one of two kids in Fukushima that, that went into the yeah, system. Right. How many years have you been doing Yumiwi? Well, Yumi Wee was founded in 2018. By you? By me. 
So to answer your earlier question, you know, why do I do this? I didn't think about why I did it other than the fact that these kids seem really grateful. You know, you take them to Disneyland, you know, most kids are throwing stuff over the shoulders into the basket. Kids just sitting there. They don't think they deserve anything. Right, because they never got anything. Except for hard And I was just yeah. flabbergasted. Like, how yeah. can they have the control not to ask for something? Yeah. So I bought them stuff. Because when we did the event, we got split off. So my partner and I had two kids that we followed around. And we bought their lunch. And, and then I texted my friends, what are you doing? Like, we're at the Disney store. And I'm like, okay, great. It's time to go get souvenirs. So we went in there like, well, what can we get? And I said, we can get anything you want. <laughs> But I said, okay, you know, up to 2,000 yen, I guess you can get. So they both bought this Mickey pillow. And then we got back to the bus. Nobody else bought anything. So the rule was I wasn't supposed to buy gifts for the kids, and I didn't know that. I assumed when I texted my friends that they were buying for the kids, they were buying for themselves. And so the kids just handed it right back to us. No, no, sorry, and just gave it back to us. And then the teachers explained to the rest of the kids that I'd given them this gift, and that's why they were receiving it, but it wasn't necessarily for everybody. You know, I was a banker at the time, so I'm like, I can buy anything people want, but, uh, you know, people got angry at me for not following the rules. So I I felt um, it's unnatural for the kids to be so... Maybe that's not the right way to put it, but they were just so gracious and they were so appreciative and whereas most kids just take things in stride and then I never thought about my own abuse situation as being a factor as to why I do the work I do I never really thought about that but that played a big part in it I, would I think now I, yes. I've come to terms with the fact that yeah I, I get it as a, a foster father in Nagoya his father is 90 he's the first foster father in Japan or in Nakoya, I don't know if it's Japan. Dozens of kids have been through their house over the generations. This guy has nine. And I walk in the room, I can tell right away something's wrong with somebody. I can, I can see, I can walk in the room and I'm like, what's, what's going on with him? Right. Yeah, his mom spit in his face every day of his life and told him he was nothing. And I'm like, I can just look in the room and immediately I pick up on it. Mm-hmm. Year later, you wouldn't recognize this guy. Outgoing, stands tall, handsome, studies hard, you know. And then we gave uh, MacBooks to all nine kids because none of them had computers, and so he's you know already was studying coding on his own. So now he's using you know this to do this, and then um, on Children's Day, one of them died. One of the kids. This year on Children's Day. How old? He was just 20. From what? Maybe 19. I, I distinctly remember him because he was so proud. Because all of them are afraid of their mothers. And they're big kind of, they're not strapping kids, but they all know karate. But they're still afraid of their mothers. And I remember distinctly, he graduated high school, he was so proud of himself and, and what he'd accomplished and that he got a job. And he had a job at the company, but instead of living in the dorm, he wanted to live back with the family with the nine kids. And he uh, was just so confident. And then on uh, the, the, the Friday, he had a car. He'd bought a car because he was working. And he drove the dad to an event. His dad sat in back and he drove in front. And they had ramen for the first time together because they'd never really had a meal alone together. I mean, their house is crazy when you go eat dinner because it's like 20 people eating dinner. It's great. And the kids said, you know, I was bad, but you helped me. And now I want to do good. And then the next day, he went to a barbecue on the river. And he hopped in a river that no one's supposed to hop in. On purpose? Yeah, just dove in. And he never came out alive. Yeah. So his father, you know, he, the, step, the foster father runs uh, children, uh, abusive parent retraining. That's his job. That's his MPO. So the reason I know him is we're trying to do a social impact bond to, because, you know, if you look at 100% of the kids in the homes, a third are happy where they are. 
a third don't think they have a voice so they're not going to tell you whether they're happy where they are or not and a third want to be reunited with their families and so this guy does uh, abusive parent retraining so that they can be reunited with their families and so my whole thing is you know there's something called ACE adverse childhood experience and if you score a four on the test you're a survivor I scored a six <clears throat> so these kids all have suffered trauma and so I think as a society unless we come to terms with the fact that the reason most people are in prison or homeless or commit suicide is because of childhood trauma and so, you know, what this guy's doing is retraining people to be good parents. Even with me, I'm like, our house is chaos in the morning. Everybody's screaming, everybody's late, nobody's getting things ready. And someone said, well, why don't you prepare the night before? <laughs> like, yeah, why don't I? <laughs> so, I mean, you can see, you know, just the simplest things that, you know, people can get advice about. But one guy I met was an abusive father. I, I always thought, never thought twice about the abusive parents. I said, well, these kids are better off without them. I never thought twice about them. So I went down to Nagoya to meet them. And there was two fathers who were abusive fathers who'd gone through the training and become trainers. And one said, well, look, when I grew up, people threw knives at me, so I didn't have a great upbringing. And then when my child was born, I didn't really have the network around me or the intelligence around me to explain anything to me and I got frustrated and I abused my son and he was taken away. But when he was taken away, they, uh, they diagnosed him with Asperger's and ADHD and he had no idea what that was and now he realized it wasn't that he was a lousy father and the stress he had was not extraordinary. He just had a child with special needs and needed training. And so he got that training and now you know his child's back with him. The other gentleman said, well, my family was fine with me. It was my baseball team that used to abuse me. Mm -hmm. And I took that out on my kids. I'm never getting my kids back. But I work here to try to train other people so they don't have that same fate. We feel, well, first of all, it's a million dollars to have kids in care from two to 18. So we feel, you know, if we can do a social impact bond to allow this guy to do his work and reunite 10 children with their families. Not only is that a projected $10 million savings, it's also breaking that, that trauma cycle, which tends to last three generations. Mm -hmm. And so that's the work that we're doing there. You said a mouthful, because that <laughs> is, you took me to so many different places because I think about the trauma that people live from different countries, let alone being an orphan mm. and to do it on your own. Yeah. There's so much that needs to be taken care of, and it's so wonderful that you're at least putting forth the effort to make sure it gets done in the way that you can do it. But you know, often people come up to me and say, I want to adopt a child, how can I? I'm like, well, go to your ward office. Don't stop here, don't stop at this cocktail party. Um, so I know uh, a British couple uh, who had adopted a 15-year-old boy who happened to be African-Japanese, and no problems, so it's possible. Um, but in my entire time in this space, in my entire network, that's the only family I know of. Yeah, it. But it's possible right. if you do it, and you, know, you make the efforts to do it. Yeah. We are working on something now uh, that I'm really happy about, and we adopted it from another group. We adopted it from the International Foster Care Association, and it's called a permanency pack. And then there's another tool called a transition toolkit. So the permanency pack I have in place with about four of the aged out youth that we work with. And I essentially say, as an adult, these are the 45 things I'm willing to do for you. And, and it was designed for foster kids really who don't really have that relationship with a responsible adult uh, in, in the real world, if you will. And it, and it really was designed to kind of get away from anything that might trip up the relationship. So even, for example, is it okay to use my laundry machine? Yes. <laughs> Some people have an issue with that. I don't. So I said, I'm willing, and I've read all 45 items, I'm willing to, to be there for you for these 45 items. For how long? Rest of your life. Okay. I mean, you know, you're an adult now, and if you need my help to you know, read an important document, if you need help with, you know, you want to come to my house for holidays, you want to eat, you want to do laundry at my house, all these 45 things I'm saying to them, I'm willing to do for you if you want. How did you come up with this list? Oh, well, that, that, it was designed by the IFCA. 
So they're the ones who, I used to have this list for you, me, we, ad hoc, where I'd say, do you have a credit card? Do you have a bank account? Do you have your health insurance card? Do you have a passport? Not because of the passport. Do you have your honseki? Do you know where you were born right. to be able to get a passport? So we have this kind of ad hoc list that I would keep when they would join us. But now it's very formalized. 1991, that was the first year that if you witnessed abuse and didn't report it, then you would get in trouble. Prior to that, it was, you, you don't have to say anything. Yeah. So there was 1,500 cases that year, not because the cases increased, but because the reporting yeah, increased. Reported, right. You know what it was last year? Last year. Over 200,000 cases. Not children, cases. So cases. if one case could involve five kids, right. how many car accidents were there last year? 300 something thousand. Right, right. So the, the, the correlation is why is it that abuse cases in Japan are increasing so much in a the shrinking cases. society? Right. Why are there still 33,000 kids in care when we have the smallest population under 15 per capita in the world? The reason these kids are in the homes is otherwise they would be dead. That's how bad it is. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, as a society, you shouldn't get preschool money from the government unless you've gone through parent training. It needs to be either government or policy or you don't get to enroll your kids in Hoikwen until you've had this training. In fact, before you get married, you should take the test with your partner to see where your partner's red flagging where you had no idea that your That's partner right, might exactly. red flag this way. It's called the transition toolkit. So things that maybe your parents told you about when it comes to getting insurance or when it comes to setting up a so bank account. So there's workbooks inside the transition toolkit. So they can't, and, and we do that at Yomi We We have like an online, we call it Empower Village. Mm -hmm. So there's always a place for them to come home to so they can find shelter and food and counseling and money. But then we also want them to know what are all the assets in the community like Second Harvest or what are the assets in the community that you don't need to be ashamed about asking for because it's an asset. It belongs to you. It belongs to the community. And, and I think you know, the more we can focus on them using their toolkit to help themselves rather than feeling like a victim. Um, you know, it's very easy for me to stand up at a Christmas party and pull the heartstrings. But I tell everybody, don't feel sorry for these kids because they don't feel sorry for themselves. They're just getting on with it. And so donations that come in or anything anybody does for these kids is helping them get on with it. And that's essentially their mindset. They're not sitting there feeling sorry for themselves. Michael, I see that transitioning across so many areas mm. because there's so many people that are in families yeah. that can benefit from the same information. So I could go, we're going to have to get together more than once <laughs> to do this because I'm you've got my mind blowing <laughs> I can think of all kinds of areas. Sometimes you find in the areas where you think they've been so deprived, we come up with ideas, solutions, studies that help them, but it really needs to be applied to everyone. Mm. And, they have, and they have to help themselves. Exactly. They have to help themselves. Michael, I want to thank you for this time. <laughs> thank you. I really appreciate conversation. it. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. All of you watching this podcast, make sure you press like and subscribe. And remember, it's all on loan, so continue to reach for the stars because you're too blessed to be stressed.